welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, welcome in. Today, we are joined by recurring guest, I guess we could call it at this point, friend of the show, Jacob Franklin. He writes for Seeking Alpha. I'll say it right now. Go ahead, check him out. If you've got any of those free articles on Seeking Alpha, I recommend using them on Jacob's articles. They have a lot of two-week free trials, so use that new email account. But also, uh, I guess you can pitch it yourself, but it's a lot of deep value stuff, a lot of niche stuff that basically no one covers. And you're writing probably the first article that people, uh, how do you, maybe this is a topic for another time, but how do you find these companies? Do you just search for the smallest ones out there that are trading at 0.1 times book value or, or, or how does the uh, process go? I do have, I have a number of screens that I do, although they're, they're generally like pretty broad screens that turn up a lot of stuff. And then I will just go through it with a very high filter, like read it and, you know, toss out all the stuff I can't understand. Um, so I'd say that's how I come up with most of ideas. I also have some, like, I kind of monitor certain SEC filings for special situation type stuff. Uh, so occasionally uh, all stuff will come up that way, but I would say screens or just everyday experience. I actually think this one, if I said we're gonna talk about was more of an everyday experience. Um, but other than that, screens yeah now yeah you just hinted to it we're talking about Pfizer this is a company that people have if you're an investor you've probably heard of Pfizer maybe just seen the name tossed around it's thrown a thrown around in a lot of value investing communities you probably getting confused with all the other three companies that start with the letter F in this space but yeah and it's it's a big company, but consumers probably don't know it by the Pfizer name. There's a lot of different segments. I guess, why don't we start there? What all does Pfizer own? And what do you think are the important segments to the business? Yeah, sure. Um, so they have three different segments, um, which I'll just go through quickly. Uh, so the first one is merchant acceptance. Uh, this is basically accepting credit card payments. Um, they have, they're one of the large legacy merchant acquirers. Um, so they have a, a large market share of especially merchant acceptance in the US. Uh, and then this segment also has uh, Clover and Carrot, which are their uh, newer uh, merchant acceptance options that are growing really quickly. So uh, we can probably spend some more time talking about Clover and maybe Care specifically later in the interview. Um, but generally, Clover targeted at small businesses, Carrots kind of targeted at larger businesses, and the legacy stuff kind of skews more towards larger businesses, um, although it's, it's pretty widely used everywhere. Um, and all of it is skews pretty heavily towards the US. They do have some international stuff, but it's it's a lot smaller than their competitors. Uh, 
the next segment is they call fintech, uh, but I really think of it, it's like basically bank operating systems. Um, they sell systems to run all different parts of the bank. Uh, so if you're, uh, you know, a smaller or even like a medium-sized bank, like the really large banks like JP Morgan generally in-house this stuff, but the smaller medium-sized banks or credit unions generally, rather than writing all the code and stuff they need for running a bank compliance, all the complicated stuff they have to do, uh, they have some sort of provider that provides that software to them. Uh, this is another one where they have like a large legacy business, um, but they also have a competitor in the newer stuff, which is usually called cloud native, uh, more like just, you know, a cloud native SaaS solution. Uh, the older stuff is kind of more on premise. Uh, so they both have a big legacy offering and then they have a newer cloud native offering. Uh, and then the last segment is payments, which to be honest, is kind of just like their all our other stuff is in this segment. Um, the segment has the third largest debit network, debit card network after um, Visa and MasterCard's network, which is a pretty interesting, unique asset. They have they do card issuing, they do credit card settlement for merchants and banks, they do card manufacturing, they do card bill management, they do digital bill pay, which they have like a proprietary system, and they also integrate with Zelle. So a lot of banks that offer Zelle use the um, Fiserv system to integrate with it, and they also are going to have an integration with a new. Uh, payment method between banks that's being sponsored by the Federal Reserve called FedNow. Uh, they also do prepaid card issuing, gift cards. And uh, during COVID, they had a lot of work uh, issuing government prepaid cards, kind of like ways of giving out stimulus money that, kind, that come on prepaid cards. Uh, the thing I'd probably highlight here that I think is the most interesting asset is the debit card network. Uh, it's the third largest after, like I said, Visa and Chase. Uh, and when you see, if you ever look at debit card networks, they're usually broken down by like what's called global players and domestic networks. Um, the global players are like Visa, MasterCard, um, and they're by far the largest domestic network. Um, so that's, that's kind of a high level summary of the business. Okay, so this is good timing because you mentioned the payments network, and our next question is about that as the follow-up here. So why does the payment networks, which I believe is called Star, and maybe there's some other assets like you mentioned it within there, what value are they providing to Visa and MasterCard? Why are their customers still sticking with them, and is that an important part of the thesis here? Uh, I wouldn't say it's a critical part of this thesis, but uh, debit cards are a little bit different than credit cards. Uh, around the time of the great financial crisis, uh, there was some legislation passed and any debit card that's issued has to, has to be able to support at least two debit card networks. So Visa owns its own debit card network, MasterCard oh, and non-affiliated networks. So Visa can't own two different networks and offer both of those. Um, so they have to offer two options. And so even though not all credit like debit cards, a lot of them say Visa on them, you will see some that say Star, which is one of the debit card networks that um, Pfizer owns. Uh, but some of the ones, even if they don't say Star on them, will offer Visa and Star like 
as the second option because they legally have to offer another option. Um, there are some like kind of semi non-competitive things the credit card networks do uh, to encourage the using their debit card network over the star network. Um, basically like part of their terms of service, I believe is that you have to like merchant merchants have to default to the, um, the visa one. And so even though star or a secondary one might be offered as an option, unless the merchant goes in and like configures, um, you know, choosing the lowest cost network, they're just going to use the visa network by default. A lot of merchants just kind of stick with the default. Uh, but you still get, uh, you know, you still do have some meaningful market share there. Uh, generally, the Visa and MasterCard are about 80% of the market share for the debit network. The domestic networks uh, are like the other 20% in the US. So they do still get some usage. I don't think this is like a critical part of their business, but I think it's got some interesting optionality. There's always talk about like updating the debit card laws or adding some sort of like credit card competition laws that maybe would even the playing field a little bit. And then I think this asset could become more valuable. So it's not like a critical part of the thesis, but I think it's an interesting asset that could offer some upside. Okay. And it's got, it's kind of a hodgepodge of different like financial services, it sounds like. And a lot of that if I'm not mistaken, came from their merger with First Data. I guess, can you explain what that merger or acquisition, whatever they want to call it, what was that deal? What did they get in it? And do you think it was the right decision? Yeah, so kind of the point, if you look at like a payments value chain, Fiserv does almost everything in the the payments value chain except for being a credit card network. So they have different features at all the different parts of the payments value chain, um, partially acquired through this acquisition. Uh, I think it makes sense, um, and uh, I think you know the key asset they got with the acquisition was Clover, and. Uh, they had this sales strategy um, as part of the acquisition, uh, which I think has been really successful. Uh, so to take a, a step back, the, the payments value chain is very complicated. Um, there's many different players in it. And for especially like smaller businesses, it can be quite confusing getting onboarded. Um, and so starting... I'm not sure when exactly, maybe 10 years ago, uh, there's there's been increasing uh, for small businesses popularity of a thing called a PayFAC, which is short for payment facilitator. Um, probably the most famous ones are like Square and PayPal. Uh, and a PayFAC pretty, it simplifies what's going on for the merchant. So you can kind of think of it as like PayFAC is like a box around the entire payments value chain. Um, so like I'll use Square as an example, they give out the points of sale to their merchants. The merchants accept credit cards. Um, and from there, all of the stuff that's going on in the payments value chain happens behind the scenes. And actually in traditional payments, uh, you have to sign up for a merchant account with a bank and you become the merchant of record. So like you know, if I was accepting credit cards, my business would have a merchant account at my local bank and all of the money 
would go, you know, all of the, once the money was cleared from the credit card transactions would go into my merchant, my merchant account. Well, in the Payfac model, basically Square is the one with the merchant account and they have like one merchant account with one bank where all of the money from all of the different Square sellers gets co-mingled. Um, and then the and then you just have a, a regular business account at, at a bank and the Square sends the money from you know, their account to your account. So it's basically like another step. But what that means is all of the complexity is inside the payfac and it makes it simpler for small businesses to get onboarded. Um, it's kind of a threatening thing to banks because it kind of undermines the relationship between banks and these um, you know, businesses. And that's a really valuable relationship for banks. Like they, they obviously make money off of uh, managing the merchant account, but they also like, it's just a relationship, um, banking's relationship business. You want to keep those relationships with your businesses. Um, and so Clover, they're going back to Clover. Clover is a, a next gen system, but it's not a payfac necessarily. It can sometimes be considered configured that way. So for these banks that have these existing merchant relationships, maybe you know their merchant was coming to them and saying like, "Hey, my rival got this great new Square interface. I have this twenty year old credit card reader that doesn't have like a screen on it. The Square." Um, the Square system can do all this cool stuff. My credit card reader doesn't do anything. Uh, and so Clover was kind of like used these banking relationships with merchants as a like sales mechanism because these banks want to keep this relationship with the merchants. And uh, they're not, you know, the banks aren't going to spend all the time and technology to deliver their own custom point of sale service. And we're bringing this all the way back to the acquisition. Part of the rationale for the acquisition is Fiserv had this pre-existing relationship with many small and medium banks throughout the U.S. because of their um, fintech segment. They offered the kind of foundational technology, so they have very close business relationships with lots of small and medium banks. So basically, by acquiring First Data and Clover indirectly, they could then sell Clover through the banks out to all of the smaller merchants. And so it was, it's been a really effective distribution mechanism to get Clover out and um, everywhere. So I think that's like, from a strategic perspective has worked really well. Um, and then on the kind of, I guess, financial side of it, it also looks pretty smart in retrospect. Um, at the time, First Data, they had a really, I don't want to say toxic, but a really challenging balance sheet. Fiserv had a much lower cost of capital overall. So they basically used, they bought first data with shares, at, which at the time were trading pretty expensive. So they used their you know, expensive capital to acquire this thing. They refinanced all the expensive debt to cheaper debt. And so it was really a creative to their earnings basically year one because of kind of that financial um, you know, uh, leverage. And also I think it made a lot of strategic sense uh, for the reasons I pointed out. Okay, makes sense. And 
I don't think Pfizer gets the buzz or the credit that the big networks or really any of the popular fintech players get like, yeah, like an ad in a sec, you know, sexier name. I mean, they don't, they don't even get the valuation it, right? unless I'm mistaken. They, most of the time they don't get the same valuation. However, I, we read this, uh, there was a line that Brett found from a value investors club write up that I thought was um, really kind of impressive. It says, even with the pandemic and decline in brick and mortar traffic, 2020, and this was a little outdated, should be the 35th straight year of double digit earnings per share growth. And he said, I see 20% earnings per share CAGR moving forward. Why do you think they've been able to have such good success over the long run? Is there any sort of, I guess, competitive advantage here? Um. So I think they've had the success they've had in like growing earnings per share. Um, I think it's a combination of two things. Um, good capital allocation. Uh, I mean, they've been a long time. They buy back shares, which I mean, in and of itself is not good capital allocation, but it's definitely going to help you get to that EPS growth. Like, you know, it inflates your EPS number. Uh, and then also the acquisitions they've made have been pretty, uh, you know, over time uh, have have helped the business out. And then be, besides that, uh, they play in the payment space primarily and like kind of, you know, digitizing banking, which are areas that kind of have had, I think, long-term tailwinds for a long time. So like those things have grown faster than GDP's grown. I think Pfizer has been a successful player in those areas. And so you kind of get the dual motors of this is a fast growing area and they're taking market share, uh, combine that with the buybacks. And I think you get the, the strong EPS growth, um, competitive advantages. It's a little complicated to talk about just because they do do so much different stuff. Uh, I think what level of competitive advantage they have kind of varies between the different segments, but I think like the core kind of fintech banking platform is generally very sticky. Uh, it doesn't grow a lot, but banks don't like to change their operating systems very often. Um, so I think that's like a pretty high switching cost area. Um, the merchant acceptance, I think is that is a rapidly evolving area and it's not super clear right now how big of a moat that area is going to end up with. Um, but I think part of my thesis here is like that, that that part of their business is moving towards kind of a more consolidated um, marketplace and that the relationships they're building with the merchants that are using Clover are really valuable and will be sticky. Well, that totally makes sense. And I think for anyone that's listened to our payments episodes that we've done in recent months, the key for almost all these companies at the end of the day is to grow their overall payments volumes that are flowing through the network. Uh, Pfizer is a little, you know, like you said, there's a lot of moving parts here, but at the end of the day, they want more payments flowing through their network. And one competitive threat, at least on the horizon, or that has, you know, really arrived, you know, are the new merchant acquirers like Adyen, uh, you toss in Stripe in there, you toss in Braintree, what are your thoughts on the competitive threats from these new companies or these new merchant acquirers? And has that 
hurt, you know, Pfizer? And do you worry about that over the next five or 10 years? Uh, I definitely think it's, it's a point of worry. I mean, these are definitely competitive markets. Like you said, they're a new entrants. Um, and it's not just like all of their air, all of their different segments have like newer competitors. Like there, there's, um, card issuing, banking uh, systems, like those have new fintechs entering them also. So it's competitive. Um, I think Pfizer's long-term track record and is is pretty strong when it comes to competing successfully. And I think the thing they don't get a lot of credit for is because you kind of have like Clover and Carrot, just using merchant acceptance as as an example, like these these are fast growing um, you know, next gen solutions, but they're grouped in with this kind of legacy, like scaled acquirer. And because they're grouped in there, I think that people kind of see people kind of group Pfizer with some of the other more legacy players. Um, and so I I feel like the market has a hard time figuring out like where to value cloak or where to value Pfizer because is kind of in the middle. You've mentioned Carrot a couple of times. I'm that's one of the businesses that I was unaware of coming into this. What is that exactly? Uh, you mentioned that it's kind of similar to Clover, correct? It's actually so. It's um, I would say a competitor to Adyen. It's kind of like a next gen, um, large, larger merchant uh, acceptance platform. Uh, it's you know, basically built from the ground up uh, and it competes on similar things that Adyen competes on. It's, it competes on acceptance rate and lower take rates uh, to try to be more appealing because those are generally the kind of things that larger merchants care about. Um, it's a lot smaller than Adyen. It was only started, it launched in 2020, um, but uh, the growth so far looks promising. Um, and so it's not as scaled as Clover, but uh, I think it's another example of them building a uh, potentially exciting next generation solution inside of the Pfizer shell. Okay. The, it sounds like there's a lot, uh, some of the parts of Pfizer don't sound, uh, it, like you said, it's all a part of various parts of the value chain and payments, but a lot of them seems very seem very independent from one another or do you know are these run like independently like each of their own companies or is it kind of are they trying to blend these businesses together i know that so i know that clover is like run as a separate entity underneath fiserv um i don't know if like the the legacy merchant acceptance is run differently than the legacy card issuing, or if those are kind of all just like one big organization. Um, but I do know that like for some of the newer stuff like uh, Clover or some of the other like FinTech stuff they acquire, they do let them continue to run as uh, like kind of standalone organizations under the Fiserv umbrella. Okay. The, I guess the follow-up I have there is, who are who are Pfizer's like main customers? Like who are they directly going to? Is it typically the banks and the banks kind of distribute Pfizer's other products like they do with Clover or is it all sorts? Uh, I think it's traditionally pretty 
pretty heavy banks. They do have other um, customers for like, I mean, the different segments have different customers. I think the thing that kind of ties it together is like the banking customer. They're tying it into like banking networks. Uh, but for some of the stuff like gift card issuing, like a lot of times that would be like large merchants or the customers. Um, and Clover, although I talked about the, uh, you know, the banking as a way to distribute Clover. And I think that has been a successful uh, distribution mechanism. They also now, you know, sell directly to merchants. So it's not like they only interface with banks, but I do think like that is a big customer for them as banks. Yeah. It's an interesting relationship how like these banks are talking with the small businesses and all that stuff. And yeah, it's, it's hard to track. <laughs> I've gone over this type of stuff, you know, probably a dozen times or more, and I still get confused, but I mean, the track record speaks for itself. Let's transition to something a little bit different. We're kind of going to hit the ownership and management section here. And the big, I don't want to call it, it's not a wart, but it's just something that's there for the ownership is KKR. They were part of First Data. Uh, they've been there for a long time. And I'm just curious, is are, are they still in the picture? Do they have any influence on this business? Uh, are they you know, going to be selling their stakes soon? Have they indicated anything? Any thoughts there and whether it you know, is a risk for you or maybe could lead to you know potential buying opportunity? Yeah, they, they are. I think they are still involved. I believe they fell below the reporting threshold. So I don't think they're, they have to report their ownership anymore. Um, the, the history is they, they did a leveraged buyout of first data. And then that's how first data ended up with all of the like fairly toxic debt that got refinanced. Um, when Pfizer acquired it. Um, they, there was overhang for a while. And I think this is one of the reasons it didn't perform super well after the merger for a while was there was some overhang because KKR was selling out their stake. Um, they eventually stopped doing that. I'm not actually super sure on if they have any left or not right now. I know that in their last proxy, they weren't listed as a major shareholder. Um, so I think that's why I said they're below the 5% reporting threshold, but I'm not sure if they own any shares anymore. You mentioned the debt load that they got from that acquisition. I think you talked about it in your write-up as well. What do you think of it? And then maybe this can kind of play into the valuation discussion as a whole. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, I think their, their debt load is very reasonable. Um, it's pretty turned out and uh, compared to the cost of debt right now, it's it's pretty cheap. Uh, I mean, I think as you roll the debt over, like obviously interest rates are higher, so their interest expenses are going to go up, but that's happening to everyone. Um, this is like a lot of their businesses are very resilient recurring revenue. So I think it's a very reasonable business to have leveraged the way they do. Uh, I've seen complaints from some shareholders that like they think the business is over levered, um, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to me like you could they can buy they can buy back their equity like and you know get a get a higher cash flow yield than they would paying off their debt early so i i think their debt loads reasonable is is the short answer the and it's mostly fixed rate right yeah they they have a small amount of floating rate but it's it's mostly fixed okay so I guess, can you give us some context, maybe around numbers? What's the valuation look like for Visor right now? Um, I guess, how do, how do you go about valuing the business? 
Sure. So actually, when I first was researching it, I tried to do a sum of the parts on it. And I think that's a mistake. Uh, at the time, I did some of the parts and it was like the year end 2021. And a lot of stuff I was comping it to was like square. And at the time, if you comped it to square, you were like, wow, the Clover's, you know, like I'm I, Clover is for the entire enterprise value. But then it turns out I probably should have just shorted square, not bought Fiserv. Um, and so, and you still can go through that calculation, but honestly, it's fairly complicated. And like, I don't think it's worth doing. Um, so the way that I think about it right now, the shares have uh, about a four and a half percent free cash flow yield. Um, and I kind of use that as a starting point and then think about how they can grow their revenue. Um, I think that it's pretty reasonable they can grow their revenue kind of 6% organically. They also have a long history of basically improving improving uh, free cash flow margin. Um, so they, they're, they're very disciplined about, uh, you know, uh, they have a lot of businesses that scale well. I mean, you know, giving out another Clover merchant, onboarding another bank to your banking platform. Uh, there's not additional associated costs with that. And so they have a, a very long history of like increasing their margins. So I think that's kind of how I think about it. Um, you know, four and a half percent free cash flow yield revenue can grow, I think 6% organically. Uh, and then you got a little bit of margin expansion over time. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And it kind of leads into another lever here for the earnings growth or the growth in the free cash flow yield, which would be the buybacks, which are all determined by the management team. Um, if we look at, I don't have that share count in front of me. I had it earlier, but the shares outstanding have declined significantly over the years. And I want to talk about the management team because in relation to that, it seems like they are very important to the situation because you have them buying either other businesses and have you know having to be rational and smart on that and getting good returns on invested capital or buying back their own business in the share repurchase program. That seems like, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, those are the two things they do. So what are your thoughts on the management team? You know, why do you trust them? Why do you think they can continue this earnings growth outperformance that they put up for multiple decades? Yeah. So I think, I mean, it sounds simple, but uh, actually analysts on calls ask them about acquiring things all the time. And I think one time the, the, person who was answering the CEO, COO basically said something along the lines of, look, when we look to acquire something, we compare it to our equity and the cash yield on the equity, which sounds simple, but I think that's like exactly what you want out of a serial acquirer. And 90% of management teams don't do it. Yeah. And like, that was, that was almost like, that was almost the end of his answer, but his, like the rest of his answer was something like, you know, valuations are expensive and we think our shares are cheap. So we're going to buy back our shares. We probably won't be doing acquisitions. Uh, and on the other side, like the, the first data acquisition, they did it at a time where their shares were on the more expensive side. So I think that shows the other, that they're willing to take the other side, which is like, when my equity is expensive, I will use it to make an acquisition, which is like almost the exact opposite, right? It's opposite of buying back shares. Um, so I think overall, their long-term record of using, you know, making that trade-off decision is, is really good. Um, and then just on the, on the CEO real quick, uh, if you listen to investors, he can be kind of divisive. 
he gets paid a lot. Uh, like his total comp last year was $40 million. Um, and for a long time, I think this was kind of like a narrative of the shares not going everywhere. People were calling for him to be fired because he was getting paid a lot of money and the stock wasn't going up. Um, I don't, I'll be interested to see if those keep happening, if the share price goes up. Uh, but, uh, he was actually brought over in the first data acquisition uh, and he has a long history in the kind of payments era. He was Jamie Dimon's right-hand man for a while, basically, and was considered kind of one of, there's been a, you know, a number of people who are considered Jamie Dimon's kind of like hair apparent at JP Morgan. He was considered that for a little while and then was brought over to first data to kind of fix that when it was really struggling. And then when Pfizer required first data, he became the CEO of Pfizer. Um, he's never sold a share. So he does get, he has a lot of comp, but a lot of it's share-based and he retains it. And he owned about $400 million in shares, which um, I mean, it's not, it's not a large percentage of the overall company, but when you know you have a large market cap like this and a new CEO who came in, you're not gonna have that huge insider ownership and I at least like that he's retaining the shares that he's getting comped. Yeah. And the, to put some context on the buyback program, I assume there was a big share issuance in 2019 in relation to the first data acquisition, but from 2005 to 2019 shares outstanding dropped 50%. So it's been very accretive to shareholders over that time. Um, I guess last couple of questions here. This one we kind of got this on. Tw- it's the fun Someone one. Asked it it's on the Twitter, fun one, and yeah. it's. I know you can ask this about like any stock, but why would you own, or why should investors own Pfizer over either FIS, which I think you mentioned is probably the closest comp, GPN, which is Global Payments Network, I believe, and then the big card networks why what makes pfizer a better investment yeah so so fis and gpn are, are generally like they're the other kind of legacy scaled acquirers or merchant acquirers and i actually asked myself the same question about six months ago when i first was buying the stocks actually pfizer was like a little cheaper than fis and gpn but over the time gpn and fis had kind of gone down a lot and it's in pfizer looked more like Pfizer had become more expensive. But when I go through what GPN and FIS own, I think that the assets Pfizer has are um, a lot higher quality. And I like the the management's track record. Um, Like FIS basically kind of tried to copy Pfizer and acquired WorldPay, which ended up being a disaster. Uh, You know, like, I think it's kind of the classic thing, the second the second one who tries to copy someone else usually ends up not doing it right. And so I think their management, I really didn't think highly of. They kind of recently replaced their management and now they're going to sell WorldPay. So I do think that's like kind of an interesting special situation where uh, you know the new management could maybe undo some of the mistakes of past management and unlock value. Um, but generally, I, I just think like, I think Fiserv is a better um, you know assets and I'm trying to, ride with the kind of better assets and better management that I, I know and like, rather than just like flipping to what's currently the cheapest thing. And I don't think the current Pfizer valuation is super demanding. 
Um, in terms of Visa and MasterCard, I mean, obviously they're quite a bit more expensive. Their valuation is more demanding. I also think because of Clover and um, because of Clover, Pfizer uh, um, has actually been doing a really good job of gaining market share and payment acceptance in the U.S. So Visa and MasterCard obviously have that tailwind of more payments volume, but if the next generation kind of merchant acceptance platforms also have a tailwind. Um, they're actually like the next generation um, options are growing at three times the speed of the legacy scaled options. And so you've kind of got that dual tailwind thing again, where it's like a tailwind of payments and then a tailwind of having one of the successful next generation competitors there. Um, so I think that that is a, a good, uh, like you could actually outgrow Visa and MasterCard because you're taking a larger slice of Visa and MasterCard's uh, ever-growing pie. Um, now, I don't think their moats is good, but uh, you know you, you can't get everything. Yeah, and what's funny is you look at Pfizer, we kind of looked at it a little bit, you know, to prep for this interview, kind of seeing what they own. And at first you kind of just go, eh, what's, what's special here? But then you look at the track record, you look at, I believe the stock's a uh, hundred bagger over the long term. Um, and you look at that quote again, 35 straight years of double digit earnings per share growth, which I think probably got extended to 37 or 38. And you go, well, this perform the growth has been durable and the stock isn't that cheap. So why wouldn't I trust that to continue? Um, and I guess to go into our final question, which that leads into is the pre-mortem. You've heard it before, Jacob. We ask it every time. Why do you think an investment in Pfizer could end badly? Um, I, I mean, so I think there's a few things. Uh, I think the fintech segment, the, there's some other public market comps that only sell bank operating systems and the market really likes them. I kind of worry about that space overall. Like I just think the banks that buy those things are kind of the more small and medium banks. And over time, the number of banks has been going down. So I, I worry that that might end up being like a shrinking pie that people are fighting over. Um, I think that that's one, one risk. That's just one of the segments, but uh, you know, if one of your segments does really poorly, that could hurt. Um, I mean, they, they have a good record of this, uh, but like, you know, bad acquisitions or bad buybacks, obviously you're trusting the management and the first data acquisition, they provided a lot of detail into obviously because it was huge, but they're making fairly significant acquisitions semi-regularly. Like I think they made one last year that for about like a, almost a billion dollars which, you know, that doesn't kill you if it doesn't work. But if you make a few of those that are bad, you're kind of just like wasting money. And because it's a smaller part of the business and it's like an earlier stage thing as an investor, it's harder to get that much insight into like how well that acquisition is actually doing. Um, and then uh, we touched on this earlier, but I mean, I do think it's a very competitive uh, market. People have like payments has been a really good place to be a business for the past 20 years. And I think people have recognized that there's lots of fintechs that have gotten into it. Um, and so, you know, it's competitive. They got to keep competing and have good technology. Um, I do think with kind of the pullback in valuations, maybe at some point over the next few years, if things keep, you know, if startups, 
their valuations keep coming in, there's maybe an opportunity for Fiserv to acquire some of those kind of fallen angels and integrate them into their system. Uh, but I definitely think that's a uh, risk. And then, I mean, this is kind of vague, but obviously they, they're the payments industry as currently constructed is very important to them. If there's some kind of like major shakeup in how payments are done, uh, it's hard to see what Pfizer would look like on the other side of that. I like that second risk you mentioned, kind of death by a thousand bad acquisitions. There's been a lot of examples, uh, I think, that you could point to where that's happened. It doesn't seem to have happened for Pfizer, but certainly a risk. I think Zillow is probably one that you could point to as a bunch of bad acquisitions. And each one you kind of say, well, you know, it's not that big, but if there's a culture of it and and there's a big number of them, it's certainly a risk. Um, I think that's all the questions we have, Brett, unless you have any more, he's given me the, the shake of the head. So that is going to do it. Jacob, thank you for joining. Where can listeners find more of your work? You've been a little more active on Twitter lately. So what's the handle? Uh, yeah, it's uh, at do your diligence. Uh, and I, I think you guys already called out, uh, I write for Seeking Alpha. Those are, those are probably the two places. Great articles on, again, like I said, stuff like this and deep value stuff. I know there's always a few people, you were the only one that responded to my tweet that said, yeah, I'm interested in listen, learning about Hawaiian airlines, some lo- local regional airliner. Uh, so stuff like that, you know, so I, I know there's always that crowd that loves the deep value stuff and that's your articles are a great way to surface that. Yeah, I just I just wrote an article about the um, airline industry. I think it I think it's pretty interesting right now. So I'm looking forward to that when you guys do that. All right, Ryan, hear that, Ryan? Me and Ryan are debating on whether to to do that. So that's one vote that we we should we should cover airlines because uh, well the replies but, were mixed. There's a lot that's of what I mean. there was people like Jacob <laughs> that were very interested, and then there were people like it's an airline. What's so fun about that? But I know I told people I, I wanted it to have the yeah it, it created more confusion for me than <laughs> than uh clarity but yeah that's for all a right. whole other thing ryan why don't you wrap things up all right well that is going to do it we want to remind listeners that brett and i are not financial advisors anything we say or discuss here on chit chat money is not formal advice or recommendation we are however general partners at arch capital so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Jacob, again, for coming on the show. And we'll see you all next time. Thank you.